Well, my father was born in Holland. And so growing up in our household, we had a number of Dutch traditions or elements within our house. Uh, one of the things that we had is that we had apple sauce. We called it apple mousse. And it wasn't just on the table uh, when you had roast pork. No, this was on the table for every single evening meal. Didn't matter what you had, there was salt and pepper and apple mousse on the table. Uh, another thing that we had in our family is my grandma had a full set of traditional Dutch costumes. Look very carefully, you can try and dis discern which one is me. I'm not the old lady at the back, um, <laughs> just in case you're wondering. Uh, so uh, this, these were like for real traditional uh, Dutch costumes. They didn't have, you know, Velcro or press studs or anything. No, anytime there was uh, a special event or an opportunity for us to get dressed into these Dutch costumes, we would be pricked and prodded with all the pins and adornments that went with these incredible outfits. The other thing in our household is that um, what we had, I'm not able to move the next slide along, is that the cloth that we had in the kitchen, we called a dook. That was the Dutch term for it. It was what we always called it. If uh, you needed to wipe down the table after an evening meal, someone would say, can you get the duck, please? And we would wipe down the table. If you had sticky hands from eating the meal, go and wipe your hands on the duck. It was just a natural part of our vocabulary, which was totally fine within our family. Until when I was in grade six and I was invited to Joanne Roberts's birthday party. And as we sat around the table eating our party pies and our fairy bread, I accidentally knocked my drink over. And it didn't go like absolutely everywhere, but it made enough of a mess that I needed to be able to clean it up fairly quickly. And no one else had noticed. And so I said to Joanne Roberts's mom, excuse me, Mrs. Roberts, do you have a knowing full well in this very Australian household that she would not know what a duck was? And for whatever reason, I had a brain freeze and I could not think of what the English term for duck actually was. And so I stood there saying, excuse me, Mrs. Roberts, do you have a, could you get the, I really need the, and I just couldn't, we never used any other term other than duck. I just couldn't think what to say. And so what do you do when you can't think what to say is you start using actions. And so I stood there saying, I need a, do you have a, like, can I, and if you're thinking of a cloth, like this kind of makes sense, but Paul Glennis had no idea what I was talking about. And all I was doing was standing there saying, can I have a, I really need a, do you have a, and in the end I just said, I've spilled my drink. And she said, oh, no worries, dear, we'll help you with that. And off she went to the kitchen to get the dook, right? <laughs> This was a, a word that we used in our household 
that it had meaning for me. I understood what it meant. I could use it in a correct sentence. I was able to understand when someone spoke to me about this, what they were asking for. However, to be able to explain it to someone else who did not grow up in the same background as what I did, I found really difficult. And I actually think that we have a number of these words, a number of these phrases in our Christian language as well. Words that we use all the time in church, words that we might use in prayers, we sing them in songs, we read them in scripture. And yet to be able to explain it to someone else, we might have a bit of an understanding, a feeling of what it means, a way that we can use it in a sentence, but to explain it to someone who hasn't grown up in church, who doesn't sing the Christmas carols in light of worship, we can sometimes struggle to be able to communicate this. And today I'm gonna focus on one of the words that I think, and as I've been thinking about this sermon, I've struggled to be able to put into words without having to do all the research and the understanding for myself. As you know, we are in the series of Advent. We have been looking at John chapter one over the last couple of weeks. And today we are going to look at one verse, the one verse we are up to in John chapter one. Now, if you love reading the Bible and you love passages of scripture, don't feel like you're getting cheated today just because we're focusing on one verse. Because this verse, John chapter one, verse 14, is an incredible verse. In fact, it, it sums up the whole story of Christmas, not just sums up the whole chapter one of John, it actually sums up the whole gospel as we know it. John chapter one, verse 14 says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This is the story, this is the good news, this is the gospel, that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and through the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as he spoke grace and truth wherever he went, we truly witnessed the glory of God. So the word I wanna focus on today is the word glory. It's mentioned twice within this verse, so it's clearly important. But what does the glory of God mean? What is the impression we get when we think of giving something or someone glory? We use this word all the time, particularly in the lead up to Christmas. We have our carols, hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. Another carol, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. We sung in O Holy Night, his power and glory. And of course, there is Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory in the highest to our God. This word glory we use, we sing, and it's not just at Christmas time. 
We use it in our other worship songs as well. We might mention it in prayers. You probably read it in scripture or in devotions. This action of giving someone glory, of someone's glory being noticed when you see something in particular. So let's have a quick look at the definition of this word. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word glory means weight and worth. So when you say someone's words have weight, it means they have importance. They're worth noticing. They are significant. That's what this word glory means. It carries weight. There is worthiness in what is happening or what you are experiencing. The NIV Bible Dictionary says it like this, the glory of God is the worthiness of God. More particularly, the presence of God in the fullness of his attributes in some place or everywhere. The presence of God in the fullness of his attributes. To be able to understand, to feel, to take note of the fullness of God is to truly see and receive his glory. In the New Testament, it uses a a different word, being a different uh, language. It brings this same idea of the, the weightiness and worthiness of God, the actual essence of his presence. But uh, Sam Storms, an American minister, says it like this. Glory is the external elegance of the internal excellencies of God. Glory is what you see and experience and feel when God goes public with his beauty. What a beautiful way to to express that, to give you an idea. This is God going public with his beauty. A great and awesome and majestic God. His glory is us here on earth getting a glimpse of it, getting a sight of it, having it feel within our bodies. This fullness and this beauty of God. And so how does God reveal his glory? Well, when we think of glory here on earth, when we think of something being worthy of glory, when we see something being, uh, you know, having worth, having importance, having significance, have a think about what it is that our world tells us is important, is significant, that is worth the glory being given to it. I'm going to uh, show you a clip from a movie that highlights what our world emphasizes that deserves glory. This is from a movie called Aladdin. Aladdin is a young man who's living on the streets and he finds a a, a genie. He discovers a genie who will grant him three wishes. And one wish is he wants to get the attention of the princess. Now the genie cannot make the princess love him but he can get her attention to see that he is worthy of her attention. Let's look to the screen as we, uh, we see the worthiness of Prince Ali.
us through. It's a brand new star. Oh, come be the first on your block to meet his eye. Make way, here he comes. Ring bells, play the drum. You're gonna love this guy. Prince Ali, fabulous. He, Ali, Ababwa. Show some respect. Boy, can you flex? Down on one knee. Now try your best to stay calm. Brush up your Friday salon. Then come and meet a spectacular coterie. Prince Ali, mighty as he, Ali Ababwa. Strong as ten regular men, definitely. <laughs> He's faced a galloping horse. A hundred bad guys with swords. Who sent those ghouls to their lord? Why, Prince Ali. Menagerie. Prince Ali, handsome is he, Ali Ababwa. That physique, how can I speak? Weak in my knees. Yummy boy. So get on out in that square. Adjust your veil and prepare. To gawky grovel and stare at Prince Ali. Oops. He got some monkeys. A bunch of monkeys. I know, I know. The downside in showing a movie during a sermon. How do I follow that? I'm not going to sing, it's okay. <laughs> now, I do have to apologise. Clearly, the original animation with Robin Williams as the genie is by far superior to this 2020 edition. However, I feel like this was able to show really well what the importance was. How did Prince Ali want to get the attention of the princess and her father to show how worthy he was, how amazing he was, the wealth that he had? He had trumpets and drums and servants and soldiers. He had golden camels and peacocks and ostriches. He had uh, great, you know, dancers in incredible costumes. He himself was able to throw money out to just the everyday plebs that were waving banners in his honour. He looked the part. He was appealing on the outside from his appearance and his clothing. And even though this is, sure, a movie version, sure, this is, you know, a genie creating this to happen, I can't help but think and it resonate with me that often when I desire for someone to think I am worthy, that I am important, I tend to lean on the same things that Prince Ali leans on. How do we show that we are worthy? How do we show that we are important? What does our world tell us is significant that we should be showing to show how good we are? 
Often it's in our wealth, how much money we have, the car we drive, the position we have at work, the words that we know, the intelligence that we can possess. It's how great our family looks, how well behaved they must be. We must be amazing if that's the case. And how important it is for how we present ourselves on the outside in order for someone to see that we are worthy, that we are important, that we are significant. That is what the world puts across. And that is how so easily I know I get caught up in that and think that that is the importance, that's the focus that I should have. So how did God show his glory? How did the glory of the Lord shine around the world? In the most amazing, obvious way for God? Through a baby born. With nowhere to lay his head, but in the feeding trough of an animal. In our world, we're so focused on the glitz and the glamour of the outward appearance. And yet when God wanted to reveal his glory here on earth, he had the word become flesh and dwell amongst us, not as a prince, not as a king, not in a palace, not in a position of great worth, but came as a humble babe to a young girl out of wedlock conceived. In Isaiah 53, it speaks of the Messiah uh, and foretells who the Messiah will be. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. As Jesus came to earth as a baby, the glory of God continued to shine, not just as a babe, but as he continued to live his life here on earth. When he knelt down and in the dust of the earth, he made mud to put on someone's eyes so that they could see the glory of God was made known. As Jesus sat around a table with outcasts and sinners, people pushed to the periphery, to the margins of society, and yet he sat and was willing to be considered unclean himself as he ate around a table with him. That is where the glory of God was known. As he had compassion for his friends who had lost a loved one, as he consoled them and as he himself called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, he did it to declare the glory of God here on earth. And as he took off his outer garments and knelt down to wash the dirty, dusty feet of his disciples so that they could come and enjoy an important meal, 
That is where the glory of God was made known. Through the life of Jesus Christ, he shows us over and over and over again what truly is the glory of God, what is significant, what has weight, what is worth something of importance. And no greater was his revealing of the glory of God than when he was willing to go to the cross, to be beaten and nailed to a cross, holding upon him the weight of the world. Isaiah 53 goes on to say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we think of someone deserving glory and wonder and majesty and power and strength, it's hard not to look past the things that this world celebrates as being glorious. Things of great worth, of great position, to be significant amongst our peers in whatever way we have the gifts and abilities. Because so often we look to that glory and that worth to be on ourselves. And yet when God shows us the ultimate act of glory, it's not through great power and strength and position and wealth. It is through the life and the death of Jesus Christ. F.B. Meyer says it so beautifully says, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the easier we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other. It is not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower, that we have to go down, always down, to get his best gifts. How hard that is for us. When we like to be seen as people of importance, of worth, of significance, but to be reminded through the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that rather than us growing taller in significance, but to stoop lower as Jesus did, caring and loving the least of these and being the servant of all. And so I have two questions for, for all of us, me as well, to consider today. The first is, who do you give glory to? Who do you give glory to? Because I believe that we were created to worship. We were created to give glory. And if we are not turning our glory and giving praise and honour and significant to God, then there are other things in our lives and in our world that are receiving our glory. Maybe it's 
uh, a, a certain person or a group of people that you think are significant and worthy of glory. It's someone that you would like to emulate, you would like to follow, you would like your life to be similar to theirs and they receive your glory, your significance, your worth, the weight of your thoughts on them. Maybe it's actually not a person, but it's something in your life that tends to get your glory. So often we can fall into the habit of focusing on wealth, focusing on the things that we can receive, things that we need, things that make our lives easier. It might be your position in a company or in your workplace. It might be your outward appearance that receives glory and the focus and the significance that you have to give. I actually think our world today is telling everyone that you deserve glory, that you are the most important thing that you deserve the significance, you deserve the honour, you deserve everything you have that you've worked towards. And our culture is so quick to put ourselves, individuals on that pedestal to receive glory. And we fall into the trap of going along with it and giving our focus to other things. But my thinking is, is that if you are listening to this sermon today, whether you are in the building, whether you're watching it online, whether you're listening via YouTube or the podcast, if you can hear my voice, if you have taken the time to listen to a sermon in the lead up to Christmas, my feel is, is that you know a significant amount about God. You already have given him a certain amount of glory in your lives. There might have been a point in your life where you have made a decision to give God your glory. And so my question, second question is, how do you give God glory? In our lives, how are we showing that God is the most significant thing in our lives? How are we giving him honour and praise, not just here on a Sunday morning surrounded by other believers, but on your Monday morning and your Tuesday and your Wednesday, when you're at school drop-off or at the supermarket or trying to get a car park in the lead up to Christmas. In everything that we do, how do you give God glory? Because the greatest way that we can live our lives to give God glory is to live in the closest possible way as how Jesus Christ lived when he was here on earth. And we read it through the gospels and we hear about it through the scriptures. To give God glory is to live as Jesus lived and calls each of us to live. And so it's an opportunity for us to take stock. In the lead up to Christmas, as we uh, anticipate the greatest gift that was ever given to the world in the birth of Jesus Christ, 
to stop and consider who is it that you are giving glory to? And if as a Christian you have dedicated your life to give God glory, how are you doing that? How closely aligned to Jesus's life is your life? Is it more aligned to that which Prince Ali was able to put his worth and glory in? Or are we able to remind ourselves of the stories through the gospels that we hear of how Jesus lived, he loved, he spoke in grace and truth? and to align our lives with him today. Will you stand with me as I close? Will you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for revealing your beauty. May going public with your beauty here on earth through the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you desired for us to understand your significance, your worth, and your importance through the life of Jesus. As we go into this week, God, as we consider the word glory, as we sing it in our carols and in our worship, may we continue to turn our eyes to Jesus to be reminded of his life. And even with all the, the glory that the world says that we should turn our eyes to, of wealth, of outward appearance, of prominence and importance, Jesus Christ, you are enough. You are everything. It is you that we desire to give glory and honour because there is nothing in this world that is greater than your grace, your truth and your love. And so God, we turn our minds, our hearts and our eyes to You. In our life, in our actions, in our words, may we give you the glory, for only you are truly worthy. We pray this in your glorious name. Amen.